0: Hello, and welcome to Matters of Experience. My name is Abigail Honor. My friends call me Abby. And I'm Brenda Cowan. Welcome to this week's podcast, Behind the Glass, with our guest, Sina Barham. Sina is an accessibility consultant, researcher, speaker, and entrepreneur. He founded Prime Access Consulting to support building a more inclusive world. Cena enjoys collaborating with both colleagues in the field and individuals of diverse professions to devise innovative and user-centered solutions to significant real-world problems. In 2012, he was recognized as a White House Champion of Change for his work enabling users with disabilities to succeed in STEM fields. In 2021, Sina was selected to be a Mission Astro Access Ambassador, which aims to make space and space travel accessible to all. Hello, Sina.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Sina, we're so delighted to have you. And
2: just to get the ball rolling, we're really curious to hear how it is that you ended up where you are today. How did you become an expert in inclusivity and accessibility?
1: I think really it started with a lot of lived experience. I happen to be blind. And so being a blind computer scientist means that you encounter a lot of the mechanisms by which society, whether it's education, whether it's fun, whether it's video games, what, what have you, it, it are deeply inaccessible. Also, knowing how they got that way, because I understand coding and technology and these kinds of things, led me to believe that I had something to contribute to making it not be that way. So throughout my undergraduate and graduate career in computer science, I, I kept having to invent the stuff that would allow me to succeed. And then noticing that those were also the tools and the frameworks and the systems that uh, could be useful and uh, amplify other, others in, in, in the field as well. You know, people with different abilities. And that's how I really got into inclusive design and digital accessibility.
0: Tell us about one of your first visits or what it's like or what it was like when you remember visiting a museum or an exhibition.
1: Yeah. I mean, this has changed a little bit over the years, but it was a lot of stuff behind glass, right? Um, Interactives and digital systems, totally inaccessible. And so, you know, like when I was going there on a school field trip, as you do, it was definitely a personalized experience, right? They had somebody that walked me around, a docent, you know, visitor services staff member that would walk me around and, you know, try to desperately find some things that were touchable or that were in some way multisensory. But there was no dedicated program, right? There was no really dedicated effort around that stuff. And so that was my first exposure to museums. And then, you know, little did I knew know that I would, <laughs> would be helping build them and do so much work with them, you know, a few decades later.
2: Sina, I'm curious about some of the emotional aspects of your work. I'm listening to you, and it sounds like you're almost on some kind of a mission. What's it feel like to do this work that you do?
1: Well, it's deeply important, right? I mean, for uh, millennia, really since the dawn of time. We've had different swaths of humanity, different marginalized groups of people, whether it's women, people of color, you know, LGBTQ, persons with disabilities, etc., all not be able to fully participate in the society that we're building as a species. And so I, I tend to be long-term optimistic, short-term pessimistic. And so I, I believe that we're, we're, we're arcing towards a more progressive and, and inclusive society, but we all have a role to play in that. And I fundamentally believe that technology is an amplifier, right? It's a magnifying glass. And this is not a new theory. Many other folks have said this. It makes the good stuff amazing, and it makes the bad stuff really terrible. And so I want to use tech, tech-enabled solutions, and also just clever thinking and ways of understanding systems so that we can be creative and harness that creativity, not only to make the world more accessible and inclusive, but also so that we can facilitate all of these, quite literally, you know, 1.9 billion people in the world have a disability, to get those brains working on the hard problems of our time, whether it's climate change, whether it's space travel, whether it is virtual reality, you know, whatever floats your boat. And those are lots of incredible creative problem solvers that are being ignored and actively prevented from fully and equitably participating in all aspects of society.
0: So you just said a number which sort of probably shocked a lot of people. 1.9 billion
1: people have a disability. What? It's about 20 to 25% of the world's population. It adds up, right? And again, like sometimes it's things that you may not consider. It's like, oh yeah, you know, there's somebody with a walking difference, right? They're not a wheelchair user perhaps, so it's not as visible of a disability, but all of a sudden you realize that three stairs may be okay and six is going to be out of the question, right? Or imagine like just spraining your ankle. So these things come up, you know, your contact lenses are bothering you that day. So you take them out. That shouldn't mean that you can't then still enjoy with your kids, the museum exhibits because the text is nine point font. So we can do things that make it more comfortable and inclusive for people. Understanding that there's an entire vector of human difference or spectrum that we all fall along when it comes to our abilities. And then we want to be able to honor all of those differences of ability when we're designing and making stuff.
0: So overall, there is this lack of accessible exhibits, I would say in general, it's all to quote you behind the glass. What are some of the things designers should be thinking about when they begin designing to increase accessibility?
1: Sure. So there's, there's a couple of concepts there, right? There's accessibility, those things that we do specifically for persons with disabilities, right? Those who may use assistive technologies like a cane, a wheelchair, a screen reader, which is a program that reads me digital interfaces, um, a hearing aid, that kind of thing. That's That's accessibility. Then we think about inclusive design or universal design, and they're subtly different from one another, but inclusive design is really a methodology that considers that entire vector of human difference at the beginning. It means that when you're thinking of a building, let's decouple the affordances, which is a fancy way of saying, let's think about what we wanna offer people and then figure out how we're gonna offer people that thing. So we're building a building and we've got multiple floors, okay? So we've got the first floor, we've got the second floor. How do people get to the second floor? I mean, you could use stairs. Architects love stairs a lot of the world's population can't use stairs. So we're already excluding just just with a simple, you know, drawing in a file. It costs you nothing right now to fix it, but that decision's already been made before a shovel hits the ground that we just actively chose to exclude millions upon millions of people. So we use elevators and we think to ourselves, all right, well, now we've got elevators and we've got stairs, I guess we're accessible then we're segregating our audience based on ability. Now you and I go to a museum, let's say I'm a wheelchair user. I I, I don't happen to be, but let's say I am. And now, I'm using the elevator, you're using the stairs or rerouting to come with me in the elevator if it's big enough. We don't need to do any of that, right? You could have just used the ramp and everybody could use the ramp, right? And you have the elevator for maybe somebody who is unable to, those things that we haven't predicted in advance and also to lift up and down equipment. But we just made it inclusive and we made the experience non-othering, right? We're not discriminating or segregating based on ability or any other difference.
2: See, you know, the demands for accessibility and design experiences and to content in a variety of ways, it's higher than ever. and And we're talking about physical access, but also intellectual access, also emotional access. Do you think that we need to be working well beyond the established national tools for accessibility? I'm thinking of the Smithsonian Guidelines for accessible exhibition design in specific. Is this the time to make substantial updates in our established benchmarks in our profession.
1: Yeah, I don't think they've nailed that one yet. So uh, any, <laughs> minute an now. Yeah, uh, <laughs> any minute now, that's right. It's like AI. It's always five years away. <laughs> so look, my opinion on the ADA and by the ADA, I mean the Americans with Disabilities Act. It is simultaneously the most landmark, significant piece of civil rights legislation the world has ever seen. And it's also the bare minimum you can do under federal law in this country for 30 years. It's 1% of what you need to do. Let's talk about the ADA and those, those Smithsonian guidelines you mentioned. Think about the National Museum of African American History and Culture, which is a mouthful, so let's call it NEMOC for short. NEMOC has an exhibit on the Greensboro counter. Greensboro is actually a city about 45 minutes away from me in, in North Carolina here. And there's this civil rights story that's told. These men of color sat at a lunch counter, right? They were subject to horrible abuse. This is during the, you know, the civil rights movement going on in the 20th century and in the States. And this is a recreation of that counter, right? And there's a touchscreen exhibit in the middle. And at the end of the counter, there's a lowered section, and That's the wheelchair section. That's the ADA, right, accessible area. So what you, as the museum, are telling the Black woman who rolls into your exhibition on segregation is that she needs to go to the end of the counter to experience this content on segregation. This is terrible. <laughs> this, is, this is something that's completely unnecessary. It's inexcusable in this day and age and it would have cost nothing to fix. you lower the counter by a couple of inches and you remove the bolts off the stools that you've got in front of it. Then wheelchair users can use it. Somebody with a walker or oxygen tank or service animal can use it. And it's just, it's not hard, but it takes that level of thinking. And also it takes that prioritization from upper and senior management in order to do that at the beginning. Now that exhibition I just told you about, it is ADA, you know, compliant. It's legal. It complies with the guidelines that you mentioned. It's not inclusive. It's not even remotely inclusive, but it is accessible. And that's the difference, right? That's what we try to avoid at all costs is that delineation. We want to build things that are equitable and inclusive for everybody.
0: So let's discuss the experiential quality of the experience for everyone and the essence of what we're creating. I know sometimes the question's level, does the overall experience suffer when you start to fold in accessibility?
1: (laughs) Yeah, this is a classic one, right? Like, I want to do something uh, sexy and colorful, and, you know, accessibility means we have to make it all black and white and all these other things, which is just, you know, terribly untrue. The suboptimal approach and haphazard implementation of making things accessible is terrible. But the suboptimal approach to making soup is also terrible, so don't do it badly. When you do inclusion well, then you not only enhance the number of people that can access it, but you end up making the entire experience more enriching, immersive, We've had the privilege of being on dozens and dozens of projects. Not a single one of those projects has gone by, and this has never been elicited from us, has never been prompted, where the engineers, the designers, the management team has not come to us basically either in the middle or the end of the project and said this. You know, they always say, oh, oh my God, I didn't know any of this accessibility stuff. I, You know, we, we, we learned so much on the inclusive design, all of those things. But then they say, you know what, though? The thing we didn't expect was that this would make the project better, like full stop better. Not just for a small percentage of the population, not just because of cost savings or anything like that. It's just better. And the reason is that when we do the work of inclusive design, we ask a very simple question. we ask this of every client we ever work with. What is your design intent? We first have to figure out what we're trying to do. And then figure out how we're going to do it. That sounds really easy. It's almost reductive. But if you ask yourself those questions and force yourself to answer it, then you go, what am I trying to do? Okay, I want to have people feel like they're in a forest. Okay, now how are you trying to do it? Then we can talk about the fancy stuff, projectors and audio systems and vibrotactile feedback and wind blowing on your neck and all these kinds of things when you're making a you know, virtual reality experience. But first you have to ask, what are we trying to do?
2: So when we're talking about the, the how we're going to do it, and I'm thinking about multisensory rich exhibition environments, things like smell, touch, auditory experiences, and so on. Now, some folks would argue that those are highly inclusive environments, or certainly much more so than what a more conventional passive behind the glass kind of environment would be. I'm really curious, what's your take on this? Are exhibitions going far enough?
1: Multisensory is not accessible, nor inclusive. Mm-hmm. Good aspects of multisensory and multimodal design are critical requirements of accessibility and inclusion. So it's like the whole, you know, square versus rectangle thing. Right. And so people think, okay, well, it's multisensory. There's an audio piece and there's a lighting piece. There's some stuff you can touch and there's some stuff you can see. So we're, we're good. Right? Like we're, you know, we're, we're, we're done, you know, like solved accessibility, next problem. And the thing is, hold on a second, are those things linked in a redundant and strategic way? For example, does the light show reflect the emotional connotations or the gestalt of the experience that you're experiencing auditorily? Are they synced together so that when the sound is louder, maybe the lights are brighter? What about the stuff that you can touch? Are you receiving the information at the right time or are they off in a corner? What is the linking in the content with respect to these multi-sensory things? For example, we had an exhibit we worked on on fire, right? And fire safety. And they were like, okay, we're going to teach people, you know, you got got to check the doorknobs if you think your house is on fire before you open it, because there could be a fire behind the door and they were going to light it up to show kids. They were going to light it up in red or blue. And then they were asking, how do we make this accessible? It's like, hold on, back up for a second. Forget about how to make this accessible. Let's first make this just logical and reasonable. If there's a fire behind that door, the doorknob's going to be warm. And frankly, if it's the middle of the night, you need to be touching it anyway. You might not have your glasses on. You just woke up, et cetera. You might have smoke in the house. So you should touch it and see if it's warm. You can also color it red or green or blue for that visual reinforcement. So once we did that, then the entire... Experience design changed, and all of a sudden, that's inclusive now for everybody, but it also reflects reality. So we got that engineering and that cool tech piece. We got the inclusivity piece, but we also got the we actually taught people something more by thinking inclusively piece as well. So that's that's how I kind of approach that sort of thing.
0: So when you get to build, is there a cost perspective? Because all this sounds sort of expensive. Have you found that it's financially viable or will it throw off overall costs? Because I know a lot
1: of people often have limited budgets. Yeah, I mean, it depends on the scope of the project. We have done projects with multi-trillion dollar companies. We have done projects with nonprofits, with barely one full-time staff member, and their entire annual budget is less than most people's salary. Okay, And the difference has never been the amount of access they have to money. It has always been universally true. It has always been the commitment to do the work. And the reason is because there's different ways of doing the work. So you don't have to be fancy with the doorknob thing, right? They were doing a fire exhibition at a science center. They had some dollars, so we could do the infrared stuff. But you can do other things as well, right? You have the ability, for example, of writing visual descriptions yourself for the artwork. You don't need to farm that work out. If you want to make tactile reproductions, you can spend thousands of dollars on each one, like the Andy Warhol Museum did with us. Or You can just make some arts and crafts-based reproductions but that are high fidelity for 50 bucks, for 20 bucks. We've actually seen this done. So a woman at Crystal Bridges who who does this kind of work and she gets local supplies and reproduces incredible artworks. And they not only feel amazing but they also look like the original artwork. And so it's really about commitment. It's about sequencing, right? Adding captions to a video, when you have, let's say, a $15,000 video budget, and the cost of captions is $45, this is a rounding error in Excel. And then when you start getting into large projects, there's really no excuse. So yes, on very, very tiny projects, you may not be able to spend money, but you can always do something to make it more inclusive.
0: So Sina, you and I recently worked together on our project Doorways into Open Access for the Smithsonian and Verizon, and we collaborated right from the start. You steered us around many a minefield, but let's say a museum has money to spend on improving the accessibility of their museum design. How do they make sure they're spending it on the right things besides uh, hiring you, of course?
1: <laughs> That's very kind. Uh- I think the most important thing is to sequence your tasks. So what we don't want to do is have people get excited about accessibility. And then they're like, okay, we we got some funding. We're going to do this. And then like next week, okay, everything needs to be accessible. And now all of a sudden it's an overnight requirement. So the real trick here is to sequence your approach to inclusivity against the tasks that you're already committing to. You're already agreeing as an institution to spend time, money, and people's effort on this exhibition that's coming out in the fall. Great, are there a lot of videos in it? Maybe that's the opportunity to nail down captions and sign language and audio description and transcripts. Are there a lot of paintings in it? Maybe that's the opportunity to nail down your visual description practice. Are there a lot of like interactives and digital components, you're doing some really cool tech stuff, that's the time to get better about digital accessibility. And so if we can sequence these tasks against already committed resources and time, we we eliminate the cost conversation. But we also smooth out the level of effort conversation so people don't perceive this as an added thing that they were never asked to do before and now they are because it's just part of enhancing the workflow and their practice. That's one aspect of it. The other thing is sometimes there's some really easy wins, right? So if you've got some dollars to spend, you know, caption your videos, right? Invest in audio description. Make sure your website is WCAG or WCAG conformant. There's some very simple things that you can exchange dollars for if you've got the budget. But the real trick is to make it sustainable. Do you have somebody in the organization that's like a chief inclusion officer, for example? Like, what are the ways that you can build sustainable practices? Not just a flash in the pan is really what I would guide people to spend those resources on.
2: Sina, you were mentioning the Andy Warhol project. I think you mentioned that there were touch elements. And did you do that work pre-COVID? And if so, what, what is the changing landscape post or, well, currently with COVID and and the post-COVID landscape look like for this work that you've been doing?
1: Well, remember, I'm a pretty evidence-based guy, and so let's talk about, you know, fomite transmission, right, which is the, the ability to get COVID through touch and how that pales in comparison to respiration. And so museums are taking away things that are touchable, but they're perfectly okay with all of these humans occupying the same enclosed space. So just from a scientific perspective, I will argue that the lack of touch access is is patently ridiculous. But We can't do much about that because it's perception. Think about a touch object in a museum. Disinfecting it is not that big of a deal. Now, putting that aside, look at what's happening now. So many people took down all the touch stuff and they ripped all the things out of the gallery. And what are they doing now? Now they're going through and figuring out how to put it all back. But what did the people do that didn't depend on a single modality? The people who had an app companion for their interactives. The people who had their content also on the website. The people who were already doing tours over Zoom, not just in person, because they cared about remote audience engagement, those people did way better during the pandemic. And this, again, is where we see these synergistic, these amazing benefits that come out of, that emerge out of thinking inclusively at the beginning, instead of reactively to whatever the current trend or you know emergency is.
0: You're a Mythbuster. I think we should add Mythbuster. Mythbuster. <laughs> to, to your resume there. So I want to chat a little bit about some of the things that people think are going to help them when they're starting to design for accessibility, like overlays.
1: Overlays, yeah. So for those who are not familiar, overlays are what we're, what we're talking about with overlays. There's many definitions of that word, or these accessibility overlays from various companies that will basically sell you something like this. They'll call you up and say, listen, you install one line of code on your website, and this part is true, and you'll be done. You'll have our thing running on your website. And now we get to the false part, and it'll make your website totally accessible, right? It'll make your website compliant and conformant, and all these other false claims. And um, they end up making websites less accessible, not more. They end up causing a lot of problems. They give a lot of folks false hope. And so we need to be really careful in the community of just you know educating ourselves and telling our friends, colleagues, bosses, employees, boards, that this stuff is not good. And it's really building a pretty terrible web experience for many persons with disabilities. And it's horrendous and it's it's really shameful.
2: Sina, we all have a role to play, as you said, and I'd love to hear for all of the designers that we have listening out there, where do they go to learn more?
1: One of the things that we are working with various colleagues in the field on is there's no good training on this stuff. There are some trainings, but, you know, operative word being good. And it's a problem because design schools are not teaching it as much. Now, this is changing. There's some cool stuff out of NYU there's some really you know great work being done in interdisciplinary programs where it's not just computer science it's not just museum studies it's a combination of both and these multidisciplinary programs are i think the way to go, because then the thinking is already inclusive in a different way of different disciplines. And now we can think to ourselves, how do we use our skill sets for good? How do we think about all audiences at the beginning, not just in the middle or at the end of a project? So some of that I'm seeing, uh, you know, develop a little bit in terms of courseware, but it's it's really, your question is indicative of a pipelining problem that we have in this country, which is that there's very few people that have this skill set, that think about this way, that were are trained, inclu- you know, to think about design inclusively. And, I mean, I suppose that's why we have so much work, but I, trust me, I would love to be out of it, right? I mean, you know, it's, running a vineyard sounds like a really cool thing to do. I'd rather go do that, right? But the world's deeply inaccessible, so this is what we're doing. And I think that as we get more and more awareness of these things, it's going to take people participating in different ways. So the work that we do on projects and capital builds and you know, helping people roll out various technologies and inventing solutions, that's one aspect of the work. But there is also what can you do if you're a professor listening to this? What can you do if you are a student Um in a program, maybe you're a graduate student looking for a topic, right? And there's a lot of work to be done just academically and pedagogically in being multidisciplinary and inclusive in all the ways we think about this. Whether you're in a music program, architecture program, museum studies, philosophy, it just, it simply doesn't matter. We need to be incorporating this way of thinking into these different disciplines so that then we're churning out more and more humans that bring those values and also that knowledge to their first job and are advocating for that stuff.
0: And are there any articles that our listeners could use to learn more about this?
1: I wrote one for, actually two for AAM, the American Alliance of Museums. One is uh, some website accessibility tips and tricks. And that one is just some hands-on stuff. What do you do about media? What do you do about things like headings and links and all this stuff that people talk about when it comes to digital and web accessibility? another one is um, how do you procure, how do you buy stuff with inclusion at its core? How do you not triple or quadruple pay for accessibility where you hire somebody like my firm, then you hire your developers, then you pay them once to make something, then we critique it, then you pay them to fix it. This is a terrible cycle. We're just tripling the cost. And this leads, by the way, to that perception of accessibility being expensive imagine, if you will, where your basic requirement, your acceptance criteria for the work is that it is inclusive and accessible. All of a sudden, people play ball. All of a sudden, if they want to go for that contract, they're going to do it in a better way and they're going to listen to all of that advice up front. And we recently saw this. You know, The Obama folks released a media RFP They had some requirements in there. They said, all of your proposals must be accessible. And guess what? It was the first RFP process I've ever uh, participated in where I could read every single proposal that was submitted. And so essentially, that's the trick, right? Like that one sentence that that team put into the The language of the RFP all of a sudden made all think about visual descriptions and how they're laying out their documents and font faces and things like this. So procurement is kind of boring. It's dry. It's the meeting you can sleep through. But it matters so much because the ways in which we spend money are one of the most powerful things we've got as tools in a capitalistic society. And if we attach to that expenditure requirements, real honest to goodness, not performa, requirements around accessibility and inclusion, then we can have massive, you know, sustainable and systemic impact.
2: Wow, Sina. Well, I am a professor and I can guarantee you my graduate students who are just about to enter into their thesis work are going to be very delighted to learn about you and your work and hold on to your hat because you might be getting a ton of contacts from them. (laughs) We shall see. But it's been absolutely delightful listening to you. And I want to thank you for your time and sharing your long-term optimism with us.
0: Yes. Thank you so much, Sina. It's always wonderful to chat and a transcript of today's show will be available to accompany this podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
2: Matters of Experience is produced by Lorem Ipsum Corp. Please tune in next week for another conversation. Thank you all for listening.